Welcome to Once Upon a Checklist. I'm Jer Thorpe. When is the last time you made a checklist? Maybe you went to the grocery store last night and you brought along a list of all the things that you weren't supposed to forget, a kind of fortification against the snack aisle and all of its temptations. Or maybe like me, your workspace is littered with little lists. Emails to send or readings to finish or edits to make to a podcast. I'm not sure anything without feathers gets birders as excited as a list. Year lists and life lists, patch lists and state lists, ABA lists. And then there's the checklist. Birding checklists were originally location-specific things, listing all of the species that you might expect to be able to see in a place, say a preserve or a state park. They were meant as tools for birders. You might pick up a photocopied one at the nature center and use it for the day. Canada goose? Check. Blue jay? Check. Blackpole warbler? Check. In the early 1970s in Quebec, the ornithologist Jacques Larive realized that these data that people were just out there collecting could actually be useful if it was tracked over time, and he set up a database to compile checklists over years and decades. Jacques kicked off a bird data revolution. Today, pretty much every birder can install an app on their phone which will create a checklist on the fly for any place on Earth. This isn't to say, by the way, that every birder uses checklists. Some birders are staunch anti-listers, and we'll hear from them in later episodes. But it's fair to say that modern birding is a very listy thing. In some way, the very act of birding is about turning living things into lists. If I ask you to describe a great blue heron and you're not a birder, you might tell me some things about its size and its color, maybe the length of its bill, about the time you saw one stalking fish with long-legged strides in a tidal flat out by the airport. Now, if you are a birder and I ask you to describe a great blue heron, you're much more likely to respond with a set of field marks. That slow, steady wingbeat, a two-toned upper wing, a dark crown long black plumes. It's a bird as a list. The Italian writer Umberto Eco spoke of this idea in the context of the difficulty that early naturalists had in describing the platypus. Now, he said, it took naturalists 80 years to come up with a definition of a platypus. They found it endlessly difficult to describe the essence of this animal. It lives underwater and on land, it lays eggs, and yet it's a mammal. So what did that definition look like? It was a list, a list of characteristics. A platypus as a list. One morning last week, I went birding in Brooklyn Bridge Park, a pretty remarkable stretch of green space that I'm lucky to have as a next-door neighbor. On the way out the door, I opened up eBird, a birding app, which will be kind of a main character on this podcast, and I started up a checklist. I counted some birds. There were barn swallow fledglings, clearly just reveling in the newfound joy of flight. There were dozens of house sparrows plying their omnivorous trade all over the park. I saw a pair of laughing gulls og-og-ogging their way along the East River just beside a ferry. Out along the waterfront, south of the Brooklyn Bridge, I watched a mother American black duck guide her six ducklings through the shallow water of a kayak launch been in and out of this area since they'd hatched, shepherding them from spot to spot, keeping watch out for the ravens that sometimes patrol the park. 
On this day, I noticed the ducklings were following with a little less rigor. They were dilly-dallying. What had once been a neat and precise popcorn string of little fluff balls was becoming a loose entourage. Mom's parental tether was beginning to fray. I counted some more birds, and eventually I ended up back home. When I got there, I finished up the checklist, and I pressed a bright green button that sent my little batch of birding numbers up into the cloud. I wasn't the only one. This month alone, people will submit more than one million checklists to eBird. A million lists per month. On busy days, more than 50 checklists can be submitted every minute. That's one checklist for every one of the little chip calls that you're hearing in the background right now. The point of eBird is to turn birding into data. To strip away all that messy human stuff, to get down to the numbers, to produce population estimates and migratory models. It's really important work. The point of this podcast is to do exactly the opposite. With Once Upon a Checklist, I want to pick up the stories that get left behind. The sentences that don't fit into comment fields and the bits of wonder and chaos and love that have no place in a database. Every month I'll go dangle a line into eBird's grand pool of millions of checklists and I'll fish one out. And then we'll find out together what kind of stories it might be waiting to tell. Ten Philippine Colored Dove, one Guam Rail, one Mariana Fruit Dove, three Yellow Bittern, five Black Drongo, one Guam Flycatcher, and five Eurasian Tree Sparrow. That's Don Roberson. He's a really interesting guy. He's been a birder for seven decades. He's written several books about birds, including The Atlas of the Breeding Birds of Monterey County, California, and uh, he's also really into dragonflies. And anyways, in August of 1978, Don was a 26-year-old kid in the midst of a round-the-world trip with his family that even 44 years later makes me pretty jealous. Okay, it's I'm on a trip with my father and my sister around the world. He had gone to Saudi Arabia to do uh, heart surgery as an anesthesiologist there, and my sister and I flew over to Iran uh, to meet him, and we were supposed to meet in Saudi Arabia, but uh, some things fell through. Anyway, when we finally connected again, we continued around the world to India, Nepal, Japan, and then some islands in the South Pacific that my dad wanted to visit, Guam, uh, Truk, and Ponape, because he wanted to go scuba diving there. Uh, so I this was near the end of this around-the-world trip, and I had bits of two days in Guam to look for birds. Don sent me photos of his journals from his trip to Guam, and they're just these really meticulously detailed things. They're records of the birds he saw, but also they have lots of little human bits, too. On August 28th, the day before the checklist in question, he'd written about his long first day on the island that didn't turn out to be a lot of fun. He writes, some rain, some sun, much frustration. I was very frustrated with Guam. The very first day, I asked the hotel, where's the best forest in Guam? And they said, well, south end of the island. And I spent a whole day working the south end of the island and not seeing a single native bird, except possibly the um, 
yellow bittern might be a native migrant, but it was all introduced birds, and I was so frustrated because I wanted to see the endemic land birds of Guam on my very short visit to Guam. The hotel clerk was clearly not a birder, so Don went out and he found one. Later that day, I went to the University of Guam, found somebody in the biology department and said, where are the birds, actually, the native birds of Guam? And they said, "Uh, you went the wrong direction. They're in the north end of the island on this Air Force base and gave me some directions. So the next morning, which was the 29th of August, I got up early in my rented car, went out to the Air Force base and basically drove around looking for habitat and found a, a, uh, I still remember a little bit of it about, this is 44 years ago, but it was sort of a scrubby woodland forest and there was a broken down abandoned roadway there and I sort of walked along the roadway birding and it was very slow. It took a long time to find any of the birds. I've been in this situation before. You're in a strange place that you don't really know very well. You're looking for birds that you've never seen. It's really hard. Usually I do my best to study up with field guides, hoping that looking at photos or drawings of the birds for long enough will train my brain in advance. Don didn't have this luxury. In 1978, there weren't any field guides to the birds of Guam, and the internet was still a couple of decades away. On this trip, I know where we were going. So we were going to Nepal and and, uh, India en route, and there were field guides to those places, so I brought those field guides. I acquired them and and brought them. For Guam, what I did was uh, look at a book about the birds of Micronesia, uh, which had description of the land birds there, and then I created a personal field guide with colored pencils of like the rail and the fruit dove and uh, the flycatcher and others that I didn't see, like a kingfisher. And I had that with me, and I'd studied it. So I knew what I was looking for. Don couldn't find the drawings, the specific ones that he made for Guam, but he did send me the ones that he'd done for Colombia on the same trip. They're so lovely. Looking at them, you can just really feel the care that Don put into his preparations for this trip. Just the real dedication and love he had and he still has for birds. Now, let's get back to young Don. He's out there in the scrubby forest in northern Guam. It took a while, but he did find what he was looking for. So in the forest, um, there was essentially the three endemics that I wanted to see there, and that took several hours to see them, but I was quite pleased to do that. I see in my original notes that I underlined, well, I put little stars by the, each of the life birds, and then I underlined the Guam whale and the fruit dove as endemics. You've heard the word endemic now a couple of times from Don. An endemic species is one that can only be found in a certain place. Kiwi birds, for example, are famously endemic to New Zealand. Emperor penguins are endemic to Antarctica. You can't find them anywhere else. These small islands in the middle of the oceans, like the Hawaiian Islands and Guam, are really likely places for endemic species to be cultivated, as they very often have specific habitats and big buffers of ocean all around them. In 1978, when Don was visiting Guam, there were only four endemic species. 
There was a bird called the bridled white-eye, locally known as the nosa, a cute little sparrow-sized olive-colored bird with white eye rings. There was the Guam kingfisher, known as the sehek. It has an orangey cinnamon body and these blue wings that really shimmer with iridescence. It also has an absolutely enormous bill, which seems at least five times too big for its body. The Guam rail, the cocoa, is a ground bird that's about a foot long. It's nut brown with white zebra stripes on its underbelly that make it really tricky to see in the undergrowth. And there's the Guam flycatcher, the chukawangwang. A small blue and white bird with a bit of rusty wash on its breast. Flycatchers, all flycatchers, are named for a shared behavior. They, well, they flycatch. They perch on branches and then they dive off in repeating loops in which they keep on trying to catch insects midair. I love flycatchers. They're just over-brimming with personality. If you were to go on an around-the-world trip with your family today, fly into Guam, rent a car, drive up to the north end of the island, find a scrubby little bit of forest, and look around, you'd find, well, you'd find exactly none of these five birds. They're all gone. This is actually why I found this checklist, and it's why I ended up talking to Dawn. It's, it's also why this whole podcast started. I see there's a trick on the eBird website, a post about it on the blog, where you can look at one big checklist for all of the bird sightings that have ever been put into the database, the mother of all checklists. It's ordered by date, newest to oldest, so at the top are all the most recent sightings from checklists that have been submitted in the last little while, sometimes just a couple of minutes ago. I've got it up on my screen right now. There's one Eurasian Skylark by Cleland Wallace, one New Zealand Bellbird by Peter Swayo, a Kelp Gull by Peter Crutchley, a, a Silver Gull by Rebecca Sefton. I like to think about this top section ping-ponging up and down as birders submit their lists. The more common the bird is, the more likely it is to be at the top of this list at any given time. Canada Goose is rarely far from number one, nor House Sparrow, nor Rock Pigeon. You have to scroll more than halfway through the list before you get to birds that were seen longer than a week ago, which is amazing. Amazing. There are 7,661 bird species that have been seen by birders, put into checklist by birders, submitted to eBird by birders in the last seven days alone. It blows my mind. 72% of the world's bird species counted by eBirders once a week. <sighs> okay. Keep scrolling down to about species 10,000 and you'll come into some quite rare birds or at least birds that live in remote or underbirded places. There's the Comoro scops owl, the Cinderella waxbill, the Mindoro imperial pigeon. It's a pretty fun place to hang out a bit. It's a section of the list that, at least for me, always leads to Googling flight prices and vaccination requirements. Down further, right around species 10,400, things start to get emotional. These are records of birds that haven't been seen since the late 1980s. They're birds that are very likely to never be seen again. On February 16, 1989, Reginald David recorded the last sighting of the uh -uh bird on Kauai. Paul Buddy on September 3, 1986, he notes the last sighting of the Atatlan grebe in a reserve in Guatemala. Colin T. Richardson saw at least one red-throated lorikeet on Fiji. 
in the summer of 1981. And then there's Don Roberson seeing his Guam flycatcher on the morning of August 29th, 1978. Here's Don's note from that sighting. In a scrub forest, silently, slowly, hopping, too close for binos and hovering right in front of my face, I watched for five minutes. It was a male. Blue-gray above, grayish lowers, white below, with rusty wash across the breast. Wide black bill, four inches. I just love this description. Silently, slowly hopping, too close for binos, hovering right in front of my face. It feels like I could climb right inside of it. Have this tiny little bird hopping along a branch, maybe an arm's length or two away, and then just see it hovering there in the air right in front of my face. Magic. The Mariana fruit dove still exists in small populations on other islands. The Guam kingfisher and the Guam rail have been kept alive in small numbers in captivity, in zoos and aviaries, mostly in the United States. The bridled white-eye and our Guam flycatcher were declared as extinct in 1983. I've been aware since uh, the early 80s that the Guam flycatcher went extinct. And it made me feel just uh, incredibly sad. Um, I mean, I'm fortunate to have been able to have a short experience with it, but to be have a bird on my list that went extinct in my lifetime. <sighs> but I'm glad I saw it. I don't know it, yeah. you, how do you reconcile that. After talking to Don about the flycatcher and hearing him talk about seeing the bird, I got the same feeling as I get when I talk to another birder about an amazing species they've seen. I was super jealous. I wanted to go to Guam and see a flycatcher, too. Except, of course, I couldn't. I'd lost my chance when I was eight years old. So I did the next best thing. Hi, my name is uh, Paul Sweet. I'm the collection manager at the Department of Ornithology in the American Museum of Natural History. I had met Paul for the first time during last year's Christmas bird count. It was about 6 a.m., still very dark, and I was down on the sandy beach at Breezy Point in Queens. I was trying to figure out my way under a big wooden building that was up on pilings. It was between me and the starting point that I'd been given for the count. It was high tide, the water was up real far, and I really didn't want my boots swamped to start the day. I was... I was standing there, I was making this like jump or wade decision when Paul came out of the shadows behind me. Hey, are you Jer? <laughs> Once I pushed my heart back down into my chest, we did this gloved handshake in the dark, and then he went off in the other direction down the beach to start his tallying. I'd been really looking forward to meeting him. Everyone had said such really good things, and he had such a good job. <laughs> I uh, realized as I watched him walk away, there was no way on earth that I would ever recognize him again. So I was relieved when I found him sitting in his own office when I got to the museum. He took me down in the tiniest elevator I've ever seen to one of the many long hallways of cabinets, and he pulled out a huge flat tray. It was like a giant cookie sheet with two neat rows of bird skins on either side. He put it up on the bench so that we could see them easier. They were Guam flycatchers. Uh, okay, yeah, well, this is the male. Um, the... Upper surface is sort of a slightly iridescent bluish, greenish blue, I would say. Maybe maybe more on the blue side. Um, it has what looks like to be a bit of a black mask. 
And then the underside all the way through from the base of the bill to the undertail coverts is largely white with a bit of a peachy breastband. I could see when I held one of the birds in my hand that it had a lot of little bristly hairs around its bill. Yeah, you can see the, the rictal bristles, as we call them, these little things here. See? Typical of most fly-catching birds, they have these what we call rictal bristles, which sort of increase the capture area, particularly on things like night jars, where they have these giant, uh, like a net almost, to catch flying insects. I asked Paul how the specimens had arrived in the museum's collection. He told me that the whole row of birds on the left side of the tray, maybe 20 or so, had been collected during a multi-decade expedition that was run by the museum itself. This batch here, the, this side, are all birds that were collected during the Whitney South Sea Expedition in 1931. This was a museum expedition that um, traveled all over the Pacific for almost 20 years, um, visiting all, every island they could, they could reach and basically doing a biodiversity survey of that region, which had never been comprehensively done before. And it found this expedition um, discovered a lot of new species, new distributional information, and unfortunately, you know, collected some specimens that subsequently went extinct, not because of the collecting expedition itself, but because of subsequent um, anthropogenic forces that brought in predators or, you know, changings of uh, land use, etc. Now, if you're picturing a kind of ideal cruise through tropical isles, this wasn't exactly that. They went through a lot of personnel on the expedition. I think, you know, it, was a, it wasn't a very comfortable boat and they had a lot of problems. And, um, you know, people sort of got burnt out after a couple of years of, you know, sleeping on the, under decks in a steamy uh, old schooner. The person who collected the flycatchers was William F. Kultis. He'd shown up at the museum in 1929. He was keen to pitch them on a collecting expedition to Siberia that he'd hoped to lead. Now, it turned out they didn't have any money for his expedition, but they did have a space for a bird collector on their research boat, the steamy old schooner France, which was headed to the Marianas Islands. After seven days of training on how to prepare bird skins, he was sent off to Hawaii to meet the boat. Kultis was expected to keep meticulous records during his travels, and he did. I've read a lot of collectors' journals from this era, and this one definitely requires the typical content warnings. It's full of casual racism about indigenous people and crew members who aren't white, and the entire thing is set on top of a master narrative of colonialism and white supremacy. Also, a lot of birds get shot. In between the field records, Kultas does a lot of lamenting. As Paul said, it wasn't an easy trip. The new gasoline engine breaks, the ship collides with reefs more than once, everybody aboard gets sick, Kultis himself with a sinus infection that ends up requiring surgery while he's on Guam. Rats get on board and they get into the stuffed bird skin. And then, and then there's the crabs. This is from September 30th, 1930. Iredam has filled the ship with shells that he has not bothered to fill properly. Iredam is one of Kultis's colleagues who has been tasked with marine collections. The stench from them is terrible. The rest of us have complained bitterly about his carelessness, but to no avail. If the material is not cleaned, we shall throw it overboard. Another trick of Iredam is to bring a full bag of shells aboard with hermit crabs inside of their hosts. 
At night we hear the sound of these crabs walking about the floor of the cabin, dragging their homes after them, or times listening to them dropping from ledges and beams where they have been crawling. The answer to all of this is a cabin littered with shells. Others drop down into crevices, where the hermit crab dies and adds to the odor of other marine life in the forward hold. It's probably worth mentioning that Will Kultis had his wife Anne aboard with him. Anne prepared a lot of the specimens that ended up in the museum's collection, including at least some of these flycatchers. Sometime in the middle of their stay on Guam, though, Anne quit. Kultis wrote in his journal that she was fed up with getting arsenic underneath her fingernails. Kultis's papers are held in a different cabinet in a different hallway in a different building of the museum. These birds, right here on the tray, each had a little tag with information about the sex of the bird, the size of its gonads, and the date and place it was collected. But there isn't much detail. All of the flycatchers are just labeled Guam. So Paul has been kind of in the middle of a nine-decade data merge between these data sets with the help of some local high school students. You can see from the labels, we only the only geographic information on there is Guam, which is it's not a huge island, but it would be really interesting to know where on the island mm-hmm. these birds were actually collected, so we can get some idea of habitat, or you know, and that goes for all of the birds from the Whitney expedition. We're, we read the journals and we get hints from there. You know, he might say, "I went up to the north end of the island and stayed with." Certain yeah. person, um, I forget who it was on Guam. So you get you can you can then enhance the data, hopefully with with something a little bit more than just the island name, and then perhaps put on some kind of coordinate. It may have some kind of error radius, but at least we can you know maybe get some idea of where the birds came from. From Kultis's journal, we can indeed get a bit more info about where the 1931 specimens were from. In his Guam collection summary, he writes this about the flycatchers. Hardly common, very retiring, and does not respond readily to call. Dr. Edwards told me that he formerly saw them around the outskirts of the city of Agana, but that those have disappeared. I discovered them, taken at the north end of the island, inhabiting the heavy undergrowth in isolated places. I have... Little doubt that where Will found his flycatchers was the same place where Don saw his 47 years later. It's not too much of a stretch, I think, to imagine that that little dead bird I held in my warm palm in the museum was kin to the one that Don had spent his five minutes with in the scrubby limestone forest, the one that had hovered, flycatching, just in front of his face. I keep thinking about Don and that bird. I think it's because birding is, by its nature, a transient thing. We watch these animals, sometimes for a few seconds, sometimes for a few minutes, if we're lucky for an hour. For this stretch of time, the tape reels that make up our lives overlap. And then maybe the bird flies away, or maybe we lower our binoculars, our checklist already checked, keen to move on to the next species. Our tape reels have detached. I want to reach back in time to Don in those five minutes he had with the flycatcher. I want to, I want to tell him to stay a little longer. Uh, Will Coultis wanted to stay a little longer too. 
In the fall of 1931, he received a letter from the AMNH, informing him that the expedition was going to be cut off. The Great Depression was underway, and there was no more money. So Will writes the museum a letter back. You can imagine my chagrin upon learning that the expedition will close down at the end of 1931. I had hoped, at the very least, for several years more. Times are hard, and nations are unsettled throughout the world. But at the same time, prices of commodities are falling. Why now, of all times? When the work is not completed, and the actual conditions indicate that either the birds must be acquired at this time, or or they never can be. Let's not end this podcast in lament. Something kind of magical happened between when I found Don Roberson's checklist last year and when I sat down to interview him. The Guam Rail had vanished. The flycatcher and the fruit dove were both there on the list, but the, but the rail had been removed. When I talked to Don, he said that he could still see the Guam Rail on his private version of the eBird list. It just wasn't there to the public for everyone to see. So what had happened? Well, in 1990, the population of invasive brown tree snakes on the island of Guam had reached a peak population of 50 snakes per hectare. That's 2.7 million snakes on an island that's about the size of Chicago. The forests of Guam were filled with snakes and also with spiders, since the snakes ate all the things that used to eat the spiders. There were so many snakes that they would often get into transformer boxes and cause power outages all over the island. People tried hunting them and trapping them, but with no real luck. But recently, conservationists have figured out a tactic that actually seems to be working. Here's what they do. They take hundreds of dead mice and they glue a tablet of children's Tylenol onto the mice's chests. And not, no, I'm not making this up. And then they put the dead mouse into a little spring-loaded bright red plastic canister that's designed so that it'll pop open on impact. They put all these canisters in a bag, and then they fly around in helicopters, and they drop these miniature mouse bombs into the forest. Pew, pew, pew. The hungry snakes eat the mice, Tylenol tablet and all. And then, that's it for the snakes. Acetaminophen is toxic to reptiles. The whole scheme is surprisingly effective. As of 2018, there were only 10 to 20 snakes per hectare on the island. That's fewer than a million snakes which has made the conservationists optimistic enough to start introducing the Guam rail back onto the mainland into small, well-protected areas. Now, eBird has a whole category for sensitive birds. These are birds that eBird describes as being at risk of human capture, targeted killing, or significant significant targeted disturbance. There are 415 sensitive species on eBird. These are usually birds that are critically endangered or are extra appealing for the caged bird trade. The location data that comes from these sightings doesn't get shared, and these types of birds don't show up in public checklists. Aha, mystery solved. Sometime in the last year, the Guam rail had indeed disappeared from Don's list, and that's because sometime in the last year, it had reappeared on Guam.
Once Upon a Checklist is a listener-supported podcast. This is a fancy way to say that I made the whole thing for free. If you want to help me pay rent and buy food and, I don't know, do some birding, then there are a few ways for you to chip in. First, you can become a paid subscriber on Substack. It's 7 bucks a month, and it gets you some extra treats, but mostly a sense of well-being, which is a pretty good deal. Second, I'm making a limited edition of data visualization prints, one for every episode of this podcast. 250 bucks will get you one of each one of these 10 prints. Just upgrade your subscription on Substack. The individual prints will also be for sale. I'll post about them on the blog, which is at ouac.substack.com. Finally, we've got t-shirts. I'll post the link on the blog and on Twitter. They're pretty great. They're designed by Alex Tomlinson, who is pretty much my favorite birdie artist ever. I can guarantee you that you'll be the coolest birder or the coolest non-birder on your block. We'll see you next month. Hi, Dad. Are you recording your podcast? Yeah, I am. It doesn't have words yet. Do you want to try to make some? Yes! All right! Three, two, one. Birds can be amazing things. Birds are always around us. Things can be birds. Birds can be things. Some birds eat meat. Some birds eat plants. Some birds eat nuts. Some snakes. Some birds eat bones, some birds eat cartilage. Birds are everywhere. Make a checklist if you can. Birds